Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Top of the hour is being brought to you by DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Ray, let's go. Lawrence Holmes, noon to 2 on Sports Radio 670 The Score. Color analyst for the White Sox, Steve Stone, joins Lawrence Holmes. Try it with your bare hand. It's a lot easier that way. Steve Stone is a Cy Young Award winner. He is a fantastic color analyst for your Chicago White Sox, and he is a score baseball expert. As Steve was saying, try it with your bare hand. It's a lot easier that way. Steve actually poked his bare hand in the booth and has cut himself open. Steve Stone talks with Lawrence Holmes. I'm about to pass out. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of blood. Social media got Steve Stone and Lawrence Holmes right now on The Score. This hour is being brought to you by CarX Tire and Auto online at carx.com. Steve Stone joining me on the Circuit Resort and Casino Hotline. Circuit Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. The White Sox have a three-game win streak as they get ready to take on the Bostons. They will do that tonight. And Stoney has the night off because the game will be on Apple TV+, Plus, which you can watch for free at least for now. Hello, Stoney. Hello, Lawrence. How you doing? I'm doing really well. The, the White Sox have done well over the last couple of games, and I wanted to talk to you about a couple of the players specifically, before I get into the pitching, I want to ask you about Tim Anderson and not just what Tim Anderson is, but his approach. I love his approach lately, seeing him be willing to take outside pitches to right field, seeing power to right field. Are, are we seeing a player that is really, over the last couple of years, put together the raw talent with a lot of hard work and, and a lot of great work inside the cage and working with the team to become a better player? Well, number one, you certainly don't win a batting title unless you can hit. Tim won a batting title, and he can hit. Sometimes he starts thinking about pulling the ball a bit much, but he can pull the ball, especially if pitchers get really tired of him plugging that gap between the first and second baseman, which he does consistently. So he's at his best when he goes to right field, and I think you've seen this year, especially with that home run at Wrigley Field, he's strong enough to take it out at any part of the ballpark. I think if he just concentrated on power, he would hit between 25 and 30 home runs, but that batting average would be substantially less than it normally is, which is in excess of 300. But right now you're looking at a guy who has a pretty good idea what pitchers are going to do to him. He also realizes that, especially on a first ball fastball, that might be the best pitch he's going to look at, and he doesn't mind swinging at the first pitch, which he does quite often, but he makes it work. And, yeah, you're seeing a guy who is a really 
really strong hitter, making himself into a much better baseball player because he's starting to understand that you have to make all the routine plays at shortstop. His athletic ability will allow him to make spectacular plays at short. But the most important thing is turning a double play when you get a shot at it and making the routine play on a daily basis. I think we saw Omar Vizquel do it. He did it very well. We've seen some great shortstops do the same thing where they they make the spectacular play, but they're just automatic on the routine plays. Make the routine plays, the spectacular plays, take care of himself. And Tim is uh, is just getting better. I mean, he he's a tough guy to face at the top of this lineup. The other guy that was hitting at the top of the lineup before he got hurt was Andrew Vaughn. I know that you're high on Vaughn. I, I, I'm starting to come around on Andrew Vaughn, too. Obviously, him not being there is difficult. But before he got hurt, what were the things that he was doing right that made it so that you could put him at the top of the order? Well, the number one thing is he's very strong, and he also has great balance. And that balance didn't just come to him the last year or so. He had that kind of balance when he was the best hitter in college baseball a few years back at Cal Berkeley. I just love the fact that he very rarely will move his hands unless he's actually attacking a pitch. He certainly is strong. We've seen him use the whole field in hitting home runs. Uh, he remains, I believe, the, the White Sox RBI leader, despite the fact that he's been on a shelf for now six days. He just went on the injured list. So at least for one more week, he won't be available because you can only backdate your injured list time three games. Uh, so it's three games back. It'll be seven forward and uh, then hopefully he'll be ready to go. I know they're doing everything they can to get the inflammation out, but he's had some problems swinging the bat, and they thought it was best to <clears throat> just make sure that he's fully rested and nothing goes wrong. Because for a hitter, <clears throat> excuse me, for a hitter, hands and wrists are essential. You get hit there, that's a problem. Steve Stone talking with us here on the score. You can check Stoney out with. Jason Benetti, and this week with uh, Kevin Euclid. It's going to be fun when they do the broadcast on NBC5. Stoney, when they told you you, you were going to be back on broadcast TV, what do you think about that? Well, I thought it was really interesting because I, I appreciate what they used to be, what the NBC game of the week was. It was just terrific viewing in those days, and now they're kind of going back to that idea. And one of the things that they've created, at least for this first-year run, is you have analysts from both teams joining Jason Benetti. Jason is going to do all 17 of the Peacock games, and then at least for this first one, uh, it's going to be uh, me alongside him, and we've worked together, so there's no problem with that. And Kevin Euclid is going to represent the Red Sox. As you know, he was a former Red Sox star, also was a White Sox player toward the end of his career. And so I think the contrast of having a pitcher and a hitter in the booth is – going to be something that the fans will really appreciate. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, too. I think it could, could lead to a lot of great conversations about how each of you see the game and and think the game. So I, I think it's a great idea, and obviously Jason Benetti is one of the best play-by-play people in the world, so having that combination is going to be a lot of fun. Since we're talking like old home week, do you feel anything when you go back to Wrigley Field? Well, I feel, number one, when the White Sox come over there to play, there's a certain intensity that the fans have that I don't think you see a whole lot of times. I mean, it doesn't matter where the teams are. Obviously, the Cubs are struggling at this point, and the Sox are not doing as well as they would like. 
but you still see an intensity of the fans of of both teams, and they're good fans on both sides of town, very loyal. Uh, they were very vocal in that series. There, there was a, a tension in that series that you really don't see on a day-to-day basis. It was almost like an emotional playoff game as far as the Sox and the Cubs were concerned. The Cubs played pretty decent baseball. They failed to execute offensively, but, you know, they're struggling. As far as going back there, uh, yeah, I remember the good times more than anything else. I, I spent, uh, between being a player and a broadcaster, I was there for pretty close to 24 years. And so, uh, you know, I, I left a lot of what I was in that ballpark. And, and it's, it's interesting to go back as a visitor. Again, you look, at, uh, you look at the sight lines. It's a really nice place for the fans to watch a game, certainly. And, um, you know, outside of that, I know that, uh, that my time there has passed, uh, never to be uh, picked up again. Uh, I feel real good about being on the south side of town with the White Sox, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to end my career with the White Sox. One more, like, Wrigley thing, and it's specifically Cubs. You got mm-hmm. a chance to see Seiya Suzuki. He's yes. struggling right now after winning the, the Rookie of the Month in April. What's usually the pattern for a, a player coming over from another league, having some success, and then what pitchers do to take that success away? Well, I don't think that he's any different than a lot of, let's say, younger players who come to the major leagues in a major city with a major franchise. Uh, he had a, a pretty good run of, of baseball uh, in Japan. So he came over here, and make no mistake, he's not a rookie. He is an accomplished and pretty polished major league player at this point. What I liked about him is he's well-schooled. He sets up really well on fly balls. He throws well when he gets a chance to throw. He's got a very strong lower body, and you can tell most hitters, they have to hit off a solid base. You see all types of body types, but almost without exception, hands and wrists are important, and after that, it's leg and leg strength. He's going to be a good hitter. What happened is when you come over from Japan where they use a lot of splitters and a lot of off-speed pitches, sliders and curveballs, more times than not, they try to fool you. And they did that with him. And so Suzuki comes in. They're looking for all the soft spots, throwing a lot of off-speed pitches. And then they realize, you know what, the one thing they don't have is consistent blazers in Japan. They've got some guys who can throw hard. It's just not hard across the board. I mean, now we bring guys out of the bullpen, and everyone is is mid to upper 90s. And so what the league did to adjust to him was say, here, let's see if you can hit this one. Now he starts to get anxious because he got off to a great start. Now it's not great because they're busting him inside with fastballs, and they're saying, can you hit this? And it's it's very similar to what's happened to Trevor's story with the Red Sox. Although he didn't come from Japan, he came from a long time with the Colorado Rockies. Now you come here to a new fandom, you sign a $140 million contract, and the league is just, um, they're just busting a whole lot of fastballs in on his hands right now. And he's not getting the job done. He experienced what Boston will do to you, <laughs> boo you when things aren't going very well. But... Um, I think that the Cubs have themselves a good one as far as Suzuki is concerned. I think this is just a bump in the road. I think he's going to adjust. I'm not going to tell you he's going to hit 360 anytime soon because I don't think he's that kind of hitter. But he will be a run producer, and he will hit for power. He just has to realize that 
they're going to be challenging him more until he shows that they that he can hit that. When he shows that he can hit that, then they'll go back looking for the other soft spots. But the guy I was very impressed with was Nico Horner. I think he's going to be a fine player for the Cubs. I'm not sure about shortstop. I'm not sure if that arm is quite strong enough, but he's going to be a major league hitter of consequence, I believe. I think they've got themselves a good one. He swung the bat better than any other Cub in that abbreviated two-game series. Did your heart sink into your stomach when you saw Luis Robert run into a brick wall? Oh, of course, especially because uh, he just kind of laid there. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, uh, when they see, you know, the Ivy, and the Ivy is going to come about here maybe in, in the course of a week as the weather starts to heat up a bit. But they see the Ivy and they think, okay, so it's not so bad running into that. But what they don't realize is there are bricks behind that <laughs> Ivy. And, you know, the wall always wins. I mean, literally always wins. You don't beat the wall. And so, uh, yeah, he made a great catch. Uh, Contreras hit that ball awfully hard. Fortunately, it stayed in and uh, and Luis was able to make the play. So, uh, yeah, he's he's healthy. Got a couple of hits in the ball game. He loves, along with Abreu, they love to hit at Wrigley Field, whatever the reason why. But now they have an even an even friendlier park for right hand hitters here at Fenway. Michael Kopech was disappointed in his appearance at Wrigley, and I'm I find myself looking at the positives from it. I I thought that. His fastball was was really good, but he is running into these innings where we see the pitch count up in the 20s. So how can he cut that down to go deeper and be more effective longer in games? The only way to do it, Lawrence, is to throw more strikes because his stuff is good enough. He's going to get a lot of swings and misses, but he's also going to get a lot of balls that are just fouled off because of the late life to that fastball. A hitter is going to gauge it. He knows exactly what it takes. Their their mind and their eyes are computers. They know, and they look at the pitcher's fastest pitch, in the case of Michael, call it 98 these days. They know at 98 they have to have the barrel in a certain spot to square up the baseball and make solid contact. Well, on days when he's a little bit better and you get that little extra hop at the end or extra sail or extra sink at the end, it's taken it off the sweet spot of the bat. So the hitter's eyes still tell him, i got to get the bat out here to hit the ball out front to make solid contact, and that's at 98 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, that ball has a little late life to it, takes it off the sweet spot, you either miss it or foul it back. Michael gets a lot of that because his stuff is really good, and as he gets more consistent with his breaking pitches, he's going to get more swings and misses. But right now, I think he's done a great job for where he is. The constant uh, balancing act with him is making sure that the innings and the pitches don't pile up substantially early. The the Sox would love to have him uh, ready, healthy, and able to go for a September push to the playoffs, or if they get in the playoffs, playoff baseball. I think the Sox are envisioning having a healthy four guys. Those four guys that are healthy um, would be Lynn coming back, Giolito starting to show signs that his stuff is right there again, and Cease and Kopech. If you can run those four out there against anybody, and I don't care who you're talking about, whether it's the Dodgers or whether it's the Yankees or anybody else, those four can 
make it a handful to any hitters in this league. But the key is to make sure that you don't abuse them early with a huge workload. I mean, Michael has never started a full season as a major leaguer. This is going to be new to him, and that's the balancing act for Ethan Katz and Tony La Russa. How hard is that when you have someone who's clearly like openly competitive like Kopech that does want to push himself and maybe even prove himself because of what you just said? How do you go about balancing that with getting him to look at it's fine if you only throw 83 pitches in, in May. We need you to be capable of throwing 90 pitches in October. Well, look, it's hard emotionally for a pitcher. But understand something about any of these guys, especially uh, if you are a pitcher, because, number one, nothing can happen until you release the baseball. Number two, you're pretty much in command of everything that goes on there because you have an inherent advantage over the hitter. You know what speed you're going to throw at, the location you're going to throw at, and what pitch you're going to throw. That's a big advantage. That's why being successful 30% in baseball, you drive a really nice car and live in a very big house. <laughs> and all you have to do is be successful 30% of the time. shows you how difficult hitting a baseball is. But each and every one of those guys, Lawrence, that is pitching in the major leagues, they are literally the best of the best in the world because this is a worldwide game now. You're not competing just against the best of the United States, both in high school and college. You're competing against the best in the world. And so you're very competitive. So calling him competitive, he's competitive in a sea of people who are competitive. If you're not really competitive, if you're not a fighter, if you're not a guy who wants to succeed each and every time out, beat the hitter with every pitch and then win the at-bat, if you're not that guy, you're not doing this. You're not in the major leagues pitching. So sometimes you have to protect Michael from Michael. Because he never wants to leave and because his arm feels pretty good right now, he wants to pitch as many innings as he can and get out of situations and win ball games and help his team win ball games and all of that stuff. But it's one thing to say, we got to keep you healthy in September. But it's another thing when you go out for a start in May to leave that game before you qualify for a win, thinking you have more pitches left. But, you know, again, you protect him from himself. You ease him into this because he still has a lot to learn. Talking baseball with Steve Stone. There's nothing better than that. He joins me here on The Score. What's going on with Aaron Bummer? And it doesn't seem like he has great command of that sinker. No, he doesn't, and and that's certainly a mystery to him and probably a mystery to Ethan Katz because right now you have the advantage of every nuance of your delivery is right there on video, and if you want to see every hitter you face this year, you just go into the video room and they'll click it up for you. You have it on your own, probably have it on your own iPad or computer. You click it up and you can see literally every pitch you've made. So what's happened in the past couple of years when Aaron has been successful, he just throws his sinker almost mindlessly, throws his sinker for the middle of the plate. It moves one side or the other. It sinks a good four or five inches. And a guy, if he hits it at all, hits the top of the baseball. But he wasn't thinking about that because the feel was there for him all the time. When you lose that feel, if you haven't really understood why the ball is doing what it's doing, now you have to go back and it becomes a thought process. He has admitted he never really had to think about the sinker. That was his natural fastball. Well, now suddenly, because it's not sinking, they're going to try to disassemble the entire delivery and see where it comes out of his hands. Where's the finger pressure? And it could be 
literally as easy as changing the finger pressure. That doesn't sound like much, but Greg Maddox was literally a genius at finger pressure. Guys don't think about it much. You don't hear a whole lot about it, but you can make the ball do different things with maybe emphasizing the pressure on the middle finger or the index finger, where you're holding the ball, how it's coming out, what kind of spin you're imparting on the sinker. Right now his sinkers are belt high. Some of them are higher. That doesn't work for a sinker baller. You have to start that pitch. When you want to strike, you start it at the thigh. When you want to wipe out pitch or ground ball, you start it at the knee. If it drops four, five, six inches, the guy's not going to be able to adjust to it. I mean, Zach Britton did just a wonderful job when he was with Baltimore and later the Yankees till he hurt his arm. He had a sinker that was that would drop six inches. And Aaron wants to get back to that, but right now he is struggling with his command. And, you know, there's some guys doing a great job out there. Matt Foster did a phenomenal job. Joe Kelly is coming back here sooner rather than later. Uh, Moncada's looking good. So some of the walking wounded are coming back, but Kelly's going to go right into that bullpen. And you add Foster to that along with Graveman and along with, uh, with Liam, Liam, you got yourself a tremendous back end of the bullpen. And Aaron Bummer is going to have to really work to get that spot back again. Cause you know, we got a couple left-handers. I'm not going to tell you that Tanner Banks is that guy you want situationally, but right now he's done everything right. Sousa, to an extent, has actually thrown the ball pretty well from the left side. But when you look at the stuff Bummer has, you realize he can be a late-inning guy, but he can't if he throws ball one. He can't if he gets to three and one all the time. And, uh, you know, that, that'll, be, that'll be something that he's got to work on. And believe me, they're dissecting every aspect of what he does. Matt Foster struggled at points last year. He's been fantastic this season. What corrections have you seen? I think it's more psychological than anything else with him, but I know he's entirely healthy now, and there were times when he wasn't. Um, what I've seen is better command of that slider. He always had a good straight change, and now the fastball, at least it looks to me like it's up a tick or two from last year. That fastball he threw to Ian Happ and left him standing there was 94 miles an hour. He set him up with off-speed pitches. Happ was undoubtedly thinking another straight change is coming, and literally... He just looked at a fastball right down the middle at the knees. So when you have the command of your straight change and you've refined your slider, suddenly your fastball looks a whole lot better. But I think the great thing for Foster was that he was used in a high leverage situation before he came in in that last game in Wrigley. That was really high pressure, high leverage. Yes. You got first and third, you got a one run lead first and third and nobody out and you get out of it. Uh, Last year, he couldn't have done that. And this year, Tony said, you know, look, Kendall Graveman needs a day off. He's not going to be the bridge guy to get to Liam. So I'm going to give you the baseball in this situation as a trial. Let's see what you can do. Well, he's done that twice. Twice Matt Foster has come through. That establishes that he probably uh, will get the baseball in high leverage situations. But again, things change when Joe Kelly comes back, depending on what he comes back with. I thought about you while I was watching those two games, because there's this thing that happens in baseball now where ball hits the dirt ball is a single and it gets back and they throw the ball out and catchers will throw the ball out. My question is if someone gave you a scuffed up baseball, would you give it away willingly? No, I would take it home with me. <laughs> you're, you're gonna you're gonna give me a scuffed baseball, and 
Um, I'm going to make that sing and dance. Uh, I think what has to happen, and, you know, look, it's a tremendous advantage to get a scuffed-up baseball. Now, I would never throw one that's intentionally scuffed. No, no. But my friends tell me that if you get a scuffed baseball, let's say that it's on the outside of the horseshoe where the seams come together, and there's a scuff on the left side of the baseball. When you throw that baseball, it's going to pull to the right. When you throw one that's scuffed on the right side of the baseball, it's going to pull to the left. If you scuff, I mean, if it happens to be scuffed on top of the baseball, then the ball is going to sink, and the bottom of the baseball, the ball is going to sail. And some of my best friends used to work on that in the bullpen. That's why it literally infuriates me when an umpire does not call for the baseball and the catcher just hands it back to him. Wait a second. I can make this ball drop in a situation that this hitter's never seen me use before. Why would you ever throw out a scuffed ball? And they don't throw them out all the time. You see ground balls to the infield. First baseman throws it back to the pitcher. Then the pitcher uses it. But yet he throws one that barely tips the dirt, and the catcher hands it to the umpire. So that 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 never made a great deal of sense to me. But if you don't work on that, you don't know how to make the ball do what the ball will naturally do. And in the history of our great game, there are pitchers who intentionally scuff the baseball. I know it shocks you, Lawrence. It does. And I know I'm letting the cat out of the bag. But there's been pitchers over the years that had emery boards on them in some spots. They had the eyelets of their glove raised. They had uh, they had other little tricks that they used. Sometimes catchers might, I don't know, the ball might hit their shin guard on the way back to the pitcher. That happens sometimes. I mean, this stuff is all coincidental. Right. But I will tell you, a scuffed baseball is really tough to hit coming from a guy who knows what to do with it. One more thing before I let you go. Vincent Velasquez, last week sure. I was there in the ballpark watching him strike out back-to-back. Trout and Otani, which is amazing to, to do that. Has he kind of turned a corner in figuring out how to make his stuff play? Well, I think he always had that in him, or I don't think the Sox would have signed him. But I do believe that's about as good as he can throw the baseball, and hopefully he can replicate that. Because now he knows it's still there. You know, you keep asking yourself, is it still there? Then you have a ball game like he had last time against the Angels, and you say, you know what, it is still there. Now he has to go back out and do it again and see exactly if the stuff that he had last time is the stuff that he's going to have moving forward. And you don't really know, and you can't tell by a bullpen. Sometimes guys are awful in the bullpen. They come into a game, and they have great stuff. Sometimes you can, you can hit, hit a gnat in the bullpen. Your command is outstanding. You go in the game, suddenly it's not there. So there's no rhyme nor reason to why, uh, why a guy will bring good stuff into the game. But I think probably what Vince did, he looked at the last outing. He saw exactly what he did. That breaking ball he threw was magnificent. That's how he got Otani. And realized that, you know what, I can still do this. The Sox surely need him if he's going to be if he's going to be in that rotation and handed the baseball. They need more outings like the last one, and hopefully it's uh, it's going to still be there because Johnny Cueto is very close to coming back, and when he does come back, he's not coming back to go into the bullpen. And I thought something really interesting, Lawrence, and this is just for our listeners to understand what happens in baseball. We saw a young pitcher named Brash. He threw against us in a Seattle uniform. 
this was his major league debut, and he threw it unbelievably well. Mm-hmm. I mean, his stuff that day was outstandingly good. And I thought the sky's the limit for this guy, and they've got themselves a dependable starter in that rotation. Well, they just sent him down to the minor leagues because he's 1-3 and three with an ERA that was otherworldly. And they're sending him down to be a pensman to shorten him up, to get him used to working out of the bullpen because they believe in Seattle that his stuff won't play third time through the batting order. I was pretty impressed with it, but they know what their needs are, and they believe Brash can be a guy that comes out of the pen. But you can see a guy that looks like Cy Young on one game, and then the next three or four times, you know, he, he looks like uh, looks like Alan Young from uh, from uh, television times. So you know, uh, with Mister Ed Alan Young, uh, that, that that's what's happened the last few times, and his ERA went through the roof. So you never really know. This is a tough game played by the greatest players in the world. They all can hit a fastball. Every one of them. If you saw the numbers of Hunter Green giving up five home runs in his last outing, five of them, I mean, this guy throws 102, but everybody can hit a fastball. And if you don't locate it, you got a big problem. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what we got with Vince. We got a guy who's pitched before, knows how to do it, and let's see if he can consistently do it again and again. Stoney, thanks as always. Looking forward to the broadcast on Sunday. Take care of yourself, Lawrence. Have a good rest of the show, and we'll try to get these Bostons. Let's get the Bostons. I very much like that to be the case. That is Steve Stone, score senior baseball analyst. Not because he's old, but because he's been around the game, and it's a sign of respect. There's no Cubs game today. We were planning on talking to Stoney anyway, but there's no Cubs game today. They postponed it. There's going to be a doubleheader starting at noon tomorrow over at Wrigley. But... There's a lot of Cubs stuff that we want to get into. I'm so glad that I, I took a risk with the Seiya Suzuki question, and Stoney, as usual, is completely prepared. There's a bite that David Ross shared to me about bad weather so far this season that I want to share with you. We will do that next. We will talk with Doug Glanville. We will talk with Jim Margulis. We got a show for you today. I'm Lawrence. You're listening to The Score. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Looks like there's sun in the forecast tomorrow and it's going to be shorts weather next week. But today, the Cubs game is rained out. It is postponed. There will be a doubleheader tomorrow starting at noon. You'll be able to hear both games here on The Score. Earlier this week, I had David Ross on, and we were actually talking about the effect that the weather can have on players. The thing with the rain and, and some of the weather issues, it's, it's just miserable outside. We've got so much technology and facilities indoors, whether the, the beautiful weight room or cages or the pitching mounds and the bullpen and the players' lounge and cafeteria, just really nice areas, the training room, obviously. All those things are super up-to-date, and we've got some great technology in there that the guys can monopolize their time efficiently in there. But the other thing is, like, even as a manager and coach, you, you sit around a lot of times, and the weather's bad, and you've done all your homework. You, you, you feel prepared. You feel ready. You just sit around and either play cards or 
eat constantly or just get tired sitting around. So we don't want those guys doing too much of that if we can avoid it. It's a weird question, but I mean, I guess all of us are, especially those of us that are in Chicago are dealing with, and you guys had a trip to Atlanta, which was good weather down there. But this has been about the strangest April that I've ever seen, and I've lived my whole life in Chicago. The sun is something that usually brings energy to people. So is it something that you have to keep in mind with players where they're playing on these gloomy days and gloomy nights? Yeah, I mean, you you don't want to ever make excuses, but you also have to understand, I feel like the last homestand just was, other than that 21-run night we had, it was a beautiful day at Wrigley, some of the nicest weather we probably had all season. You can get over just playing constantly in this nasty weather. You know, it's part of the job. Guys go out and they compete really hard. But, yeah, you take that in consideration and understand every once in a while we'll take it out of their hands, hit indoors, try to, like I said, show up a little bit later. We are not uh, exposed to those elements all day. Hopefully we get a reprieve tomorrow and next week we all going to be in shorts and t-shirts. It's going to be great. I'm going to talk with Doug Glanville about the Cubs next here on The Score. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Peers out over third and brings it. Strike three called and the ball game is over. White Sox sweep the two-game series. Hendricks works a 1-2-3 ninth inning. And the final score, the White Sox four and the Cubs three. Cubs didn't play that poorly in the series against the White Sox, but they did miss some opportunities to with runners in the scoring position that may have changed at least the second game of that series. They'll play the White Sox again at the end of May. They've got the day off today because the rain just won't stop. Just saw this. And I knew I wasn't crazy. NBC Chicago said that this is the most rain that we've gotten in a spring in 63 years. Because I've been saying I can't remember, and I'm not 63, I'm 46. So I was like, I can't remember a spring like this. Obviously, now I have some evidence to back that up. Doug Glanville is one of the smartest people that works in sports. He does a great job of analyzing what's happening in baseball for ESPN and, of course, on the Marquee Network. He joins me on the Circuit Resort and Casino Hotline. Circuit Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Doug, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I don't have any answers on the weather, though. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully it'll be just, I think the sun's coming out tomorrow, uh, as Annie would say, and and everything will be good for the doubleheader tomorrow. I, I wanted to ask you a couple questions because you were talking about this on Twitter. You were talking about coming up in 95 and how hard of a ramp-up that was for you or disorienting it was for you as a player. What are the players that are playing now going through through this first month of baseball with a shortened spring training? You know, just getting rhythm, and it takes, it takes time, especially the pitchers. You know, they're, you know, you talk about them stretching out in the starting rotation on how they're trying to get their timing and be able to go deeper into ball games, even though they're not required as much to go nine clearly, but they're more, uh, you know, if they go six and set up their bullpen the way they ideally like, 
that puts you in the best position to win, especially when you're the home team. So it's a challenge. 95, we were coming on the back end of the strike, and we missed a lot of spring training. The guys that were sure things to be on the team, like a Sammy Sosa, they made sure they, they got them ready right away. Guys who were you know, young, coming up, not quite established, we had to still sit out because of the strike as part of the union, but at the same time, we didn't have a chance to play very often in spring training because they were getting the big guys ready. So those players, you know, have a tough time. And a lot of the players this spring were in that circumstance. Yeah, they played in the backfields or played in B games and things like that, but they didn't get that sort of major league rhythm, that type of tempo. So it's, it's a little bit of catch up. And, you know, the, the equalizers at all teams were going through it so they can relate, but it's a time where you realize you're not quite as sharp as you could be this time of year. In the past, I feel like that's what I was seeing with Marcus Stroman, where the first couple of starts for him were a little disjointed, and then his last two starts, he's been right on top of it. Exactly, and and that you know everybody's different and has to figure out their rhythm. I mean, Stroman and many others who have that kind of experience, they do what they can, but you can't simulate that in a batting cage or you know on a backfield. It, it's just not the same. It's the leverage, the the energy it requires, the stress of it. So, yeah, I expect a lot of starters to, you know, start to get into groove now. And, like, the league tried to do what they could to, you know, let the rosters be larger up until, you know, this past week. Said, all right, you can carry, you know, a couple extra players. But that's why you saw a lot of bullpen shine. And even the the Cubs bullpen has been a stronger point on the pitching side because they, they were required to get in their fourth, fifth inning, third inning because of the fact that starters couldn't go as deep as they could normally. I wanted to ask you about Seiya Suzuki. I had a really good conversation earlier today with Steve Stone about Seiya, where he was talking about the adjustment and the adjustment back. What have you seen Suzuki do well? What are pitchers now challenging him with, and how can he go about adjusting? Well, I love Suzuki's game. I mean, I you know had a chance to talk to him a little bit in spring training and watch him. He really has all the tools. He's one of those guys that are is, is good across the board. You know, really enjoy like his defense. He's he can throw. He's accurate. He has a good sense of the zone. He's got some pop. I mean, he does a lot of things well, and uh, he's an exciting player. I think early on you saw someone that found you know his groove right out of the gate. And what was interesting is the big concern is velocity. Uh, big leagues, major league is three miles an hour fastball uh, on average over uh, Japan. So there was a significant difference in terms of you know, just sort of keeping up with the tempo. But, you know, he seemed to adjust pretty well. He's, and being disciplined as he is, he's not afraid to take pitches. And what I've seen is the pitchers now are kind of getting ahead, you know, jumping in there, especially elevated because his string, he's kind of a back leg guy, kind of has an upward plane. So he's following a lot of those off or a little bit late. And then late in the count, he seems to be looking a little bit more off speed and they're kind of pounding him in. So you see a lot of strikeouts looking. I think over 50% of his strikeouts are looking. So that's the adjustment. But he's, he's a student, and I think he'll figure out, okay, get on that fastball early, get the top hand activated so you get on top of this stuff, and be, be aggressive with two strikes because they're being aggressive with him. Cubs hitters, we've seen a lot of strikeout lookings for not just Suzuki but the entire lineup. When that's happening, what does that mean? Sometimes it's it's just a, a period of time with matchups. You know, you might come against a team like the Brewers with you know, very aggressive starters. That could be part of it. 
it, it could be it's feeling of uh, being tentative. And I wouldn't say one through nine will all sort of catch that bug, but there is a time where you're like, all right, let me work counts. And the, the Cubs have had, you know, they're top five and on base percentage. They're on base. So they have a good sense of the zone. It's then once you are on base, what are you going to do? And if you're not a team that's hitting three run home runs or playing to that, then you have to manufacture. And what I liked about the last game in the, in the White Sox series is that they, they were running and it's not just running saying, Hey, I'm stealing a base. It's just being in motion and disrupting the defense. And when you have a t- defenses that are shifting a lot, like teams like the Mets or whatever, that's, that adds an extra layer to it because they're out of position already to either cover for a stolen base or to cover for a hit and run or to, you know, whatever it is in a certain counter situationally, double play depth. That's where running creates havoc, even if it's not about, quote, stealing a base. And I like that we saw it with Jason Hayward hit a, hit a slow roll on the left side of the infield. And they were in motion. Shortstop was nowhere to be found. So I, I think that's what they could do more. You have a Nico Horner. You have a Madrigal. Guys who can make contact and, and have good back control. Uh, that, that, to me, could be the next frontier uh, for what the Cubs could do until you've really established that maybe you are a team that can hit more home runs. I'm glad that you clearly looked at what I was going to ask you because Nico Horner was on the list. And we're talking with, with Doug Glanville here of the Marquee Network. What do you think Nico Horner can turn into? I mean, he's, you know, he's got that. I mean, if I think of comparisons, which is, you know, often unfair, but a Dustin Pedroia kind of, I mean, he's, he's gritty. He hustles. He's got like high baseball IQ, like his ability to, you know, run the bases and have good instincts. But he's, he's a guy also can make a lot of contact. He's, he's not afraid to hit with two strikes. I mean, power, shouldn't be his focus, but he's going to, you know, we saw the other day, he can sock one out of there. So, you know, he has a lot of intangibles, but he also has a lot of talent and he puts the work in defense is impeccable. So that's a, that's an anchor type player. And I think the tough thing is you have like an Anderson Simmons, who's more of a pure shortstop. If he comes up, is, you know, Nico going to be at second and Madrigal, what do you do? But those are pretty good options having those guys because they all can catch the ball. So, yeah, I, I see him as a, you know a long time part of this organization, and you know he's just steady. You know he's a, he's a guy that you the more you watch him, you see like all the little things he does uh, to help you win ball games. How's Ian Happ grown? Because it, I I look at him, Doug, and I I feel like I'm watching a guy grow in his game, but also understanding that he's got some leadership ability and he's starting to show it. Yeah, what Happ is looks fantastic and. The thing about he he's the example that I use when I say this, I say this quite often. It isn't so much about knowing the strike zone. It's about knowing your strike zone. And Ian Happ is a guy that elevated pitches, got him in trouble and he could not get on top of it. And eventually he gets in these rhythms where he's swinging under everything and just can't catch up to it, but he's chasing it. And I'm watching someone this year be very confident with two strikes laying off a lot, even though he's almost, a lot of times he's kind of checking, he's almost chasing, but you could tell he's worked hard to bring the ball down. That's his zone. And, and now you're seeing someone who has as, almost as many walks as strikeouts, which is phenomenal. You know, he's showing the power. And now you're seeing that complete first round pick that, you know, is Ian Happ. So with that comes a lot of confidence and an ability to, you know, share that with, with players as you've gained more experience and become transitioning into more of a, 
an experienced player. So, I mean, and you know, both sides of the plate. I mean, he looks good. And but the real noticeable thing is the chase. He's going to get his strikeouts like pretty much everybody else is in the, in the league now. But the key is him bringing up the walk totals because he has that kind of discipline. And it all started by him like not chasing the the high fastball, just keeping it down. Doug, when you have a team that there there are people who don't think that this team is is in contention to win this season. And the it's already been a struggle so far through twenty four games. And there's a nice soft spot in the schedule coming up next week that the Cubs could totally take advantage of. But if we are talking about a season where you're not really winning anything, how do you go about doing your job and staying focused on improving as a player when the team success isn't necessarily what you want? Well, you know, I think you start off by treating every day one at a time saying we can win and we can be better. I mean, there's so many examples, especially in recent times, that teams – kind of come out of nowhere. I mean, I mean, Minnesota Twins or whoever, right? There's teams, and you, you do get into the why not us. And teams can falter. Atlanta Braves all season long were a 500 team until August. Like, literally, they weren't above 500 <laughs> until August. And the, the right moves at the right time. The encouraging thing is the Cubs are making moves. You know, they didn't say, like, okay, we're going to throw a bunch of young guys out there. Good luck. They still signed veterans. They still – put pieces in there. They got Suzuki, you know, they're not, they didn't throw this season away. And, and I think the challenge they have is probably more on the pitching side, you know, getting that stability of like, you know, Hendricks and, you know, they don't have sort of the, the number one, one and, and the back end is struggled. So you have rotational challenges. And what that does is even if your bullpen's doing well, you're starting to thin it out every day because you're not going five, you're not going six, you're going three, you're going four. And that bullpen that's good is now overworked, and they start to add up. That's what happened to the Padres last year. They had they had all these innings, and a couple of start. And it was only because their starters got hurt, and then they completely collapsed. Well, they collapsed because their bullpen was already number one in innings pitched, and they were all of a sudden in August, and their starters were on the shelf. That's the risk. And so, if your starters are starting off in this short start moment, like five innings, four innings. But it's hard to sustain that. So, but I see on the offense a lot of upside. First of all, you have a team that knows the strike zone. They're disciplined. They get on base. You know, they have to improve on the defensive side of that lineup in terms of catching the ball, especially when you have Kyle Hendricks on the mound, guys that Stroman, sinker ballers, you need to catch the ball and, and close out plays. Those go hand in hand with that type of rotation. They're not strikeout pitchers by any stretch. So there's pieces floating around. But I, what I like about the offense is, you know, maybe some guys will start showing more power, Suzuki and so on, but they have some athletes that can run, you know, or at least put them in motion. I'd love to see, like, a little bit more old school, like, a, a, you know, sort of Rossi kind of style where, like, yeah, put some guys in motion, just disrupt the shifts, just cause havoc. Because guess what? Chicago Cubs are number one in Major League Baseball and grounding at the double plays. So one way to get out of the double play is get people in motion. I think that type of chaos would be great for what the Cubs could do. What should we take away from Dusty Baker getting his 2000th win as a manager? I mean, Dusty is, you know, he's, he's like a national hero of baseball. I mean, he really has that type of stature. And I, I see him having a stat, statue one day to go with Fergie coming up here. But, you know, Dusty, I, I was very fortunate to play for him in 03, and he became – 
a true father figure. And uh, I lost my dad the year before in 2002, so it definitely was a direct line to Dusty. And what I appreciate is about he treats everyone like family. And he's very honest. He's a straight shooter. He's got the swagger. He wants to win. He'll do whatever it takes to win. He knows how to use personnel in the sense of their knowledge. Like you think about like, oh, put this guy in the right place. But he knew, he understood about how to leverage people's wisdom and insights to help younger players, to help people kind of get through things. I mean, so I, I really felt like I was home playing for Dusty. And, and that's not just like whether you play for him. It's the other dugouts had so much respect for him. I mean, you know, days of the Giants, we took polls all the time and Dusty was always the most popular manager, sort of like how Joe Madden was at his peak here. Yeah, Dusty was that guy. It was just popular, uh, fun, trash talk. I, I remember we played the Braves in the playoffs in 2003. And, and with the Phillies, all I did was chase the back of the Braves. So it was good to knock them off <laughs> with the cup. <laughs> and so we were in the locker room before, you know, the series starts. And he starts, he's given this, you know, typical Dusty speech. And, you know, he had he'd just come off of the press conference. He's like, look, I'm going to tell you what I said about this. I said, I told the press, I'm happy to be here. We're very fortunate to be on the same field as the Braves. They're, they have a fantastic pitching staff. They're one of the best teams. We'll be very fortunate to go toe-to-toe with this team. That's what he said publicly. And then he calls us in the meeting. He says, don't believe a word I just said. I'm just playing mind games right now. <laughs> I don't believe any of that. We're going to destroy this team in their own house. <laughs> so that was Dusty. He loved to just, you know, he knew pop culture. He played all the music. He kept, I mean, he just kept it fun, but, but you also knew like he was about business too. And uh, so I, I had a blast playing for Dusty as so many other players had. Doug, as always, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Doug Glanville. You can watch him on the marquee network. He does a great job there. You can read his work on ESPN. He's fantastic. And if you're lucky enough to be a student at UConn, you can take his class. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll get back on the White Sox. Jim Margulis of the Sox Machine joins me next on The Score. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. 